Hey, it's Jeff. This week, I spoke with David Burcelli. Love this guy. Really genuine, purposeful, well-meaning in his intentions. Not a guy who's into power. A guy who's really into service. And in the heart of those good intentions, he crafted a beautiful healing model. Not a model that is riddled with dogma, but one that is humble, heartfelt, helpful, and one that recognizes that we are all trauma survivors to one extent or another, and that coming from a place of inquiry with respect to what we've experienced and what will serve our healing is key to our transformation. David Bercelli, PhD, is an international author, presenter, and trainer in the areas of trauma intervention, stress reduction, and resiliency and recovery training. He has lived and worked in war-torn countries and natural disaster zones around the world. He specializes in recovery with large populations. Dr. Bercelli is also the creator of a revolutionary set of tension and trauma-releasing exercises called TRE. That's what we talk about today. He's also the author of three books that have been translated into 15 languages. His academic career includes a degree in social work, clinical social work, theology, and Middle Eastern studies. He's also certified as a massage therapist and a bioenergetic therapist. And if you know my work, you know I love bioenergetics. I really, really enjoyed my time with him. And I encourage you to check out his work and his website. Link is in the show notes, as is the link to my main website and healing courses. But if you get a chance, do some TRE. It's good for the heart. Kind of like listening to Trevor Hall and his song Arrows. So let's start there again. Thanks for thanks for doing this today. What's shaking? Yeah, I'm doing quite well. Yeah, thank you. I thought maybe we would start with just like what is TRE and who would benefit from the experience of a TRE session. Okay, just as simply as I could put it, TRE stands for Tension and Trauma Releasing Exercises, and it's a series of exercises that actually evokes a mild vibration or what we call tremoring throughout the body. But it does it at very deep levels inside the human body. And its whole purpose, it has two purposes. It downregulates the nervous system, meaning helps calm people down from anxiety or tension. And it actually softens the muscle tissue and relaxes fascia patterns. So it actually relaxes the physiology and the neurology, meaning the nervous system, And our body is genetically designed to do this. We're encoded to do this. 
So it's actually a self-activated mechanism in the human body designed to relax us during times of stress or anxiety. Great. And, and in terms of a session, so if I book a TRE session, what do we do in that session? In the session, what generally happens is somebody will be guided through a series of exercises. There are seven of them, but some people can do just one or two and activate them. The person who's guiding you through it will be able to observe your body and show you what's most useful for you. But you actually do the exercises. And in the very first session, you'll activate this vibration or tremoring mechanism in your body. Then the person who's facilitating this will watch how it moves through the body until it gets to a point of being stuck, maybe like in the diaphragm or in the shoulders or neck, something like that. And then they'll give you self-help interventions to release that stuck pattern so that the tremor can move more smoothly throughout the entire structure to actually calm the whole body down. So it's really just a matter of exercise, activating the tremor mechanism, and then facilitating it as it moves through the body. Got it. It sounds a little bit like I, I worked with Alexander Lowen, who was one of the co-founders of Bioenergetics, and they talked a lot about vibration and grounding and fluidity yeah. moving through the body. And is do you does that feel right? Is it somewhat similar to that? Yeah, it's along the same lineage. If you talk about Wilhelm Reich, who first started this observation of the body and the psyche interacting together. And then Alexander Lohan, who studied under Wilhelm Reich, and I studied under Alexander Lohan. I'm a bioenergetic therapist as well. And what I realized was, is that you can actually take this psychology out because the tremor mechanism is neuroanatomical. It may affect the psyche, but people can still reduce stress not even knowing what the stress is from, not even having a psychological connection to it, and the body will still react or respond to eliciting its own vibration to relax itself. Got it. So we take it out of psychotherapy, and we make it more an experience of physiology. Which may often intrinsically interface with our psychology. Exactly with, right. Without us even having to put words to that. Well, that what's really valuable is many people have, who have had childhood stress or tension or anxiety just from growing up in a dysfunctional family or dysfunctional world at this point, and they have no story to put to it. It's just that this is how I grew up. So oftentimes, the story can be irrelevant or not even known by the individual, and the body can still release its stress. It doesn't always have to articulate a story with that process. So I just want to share my experience with TRE, why I've come to wanting to talk to you in particular. A few years ago, I was going through a very stressful time and I began to work with a bioenergetic therapist who I have great regard for uh, from Quebec. Her name is Louise Frechette. No, Louise. Well, she's See, wonderful. She's yeah. fantastic. She, she means business. You know? yes. she, she, yeah, yeah, she's good. She's good. So... We were doing some bio stuff and, you know, I like the grounding and I like some of the anger release work that was helpful for me at the time, but it felt a little bit too invigorated for me in that particular moment. I felt like I needed something with more subtlety. And one of my challenges sometimes with bioenergetics, I mean, it's just a brilliant model. I mean, Lowen just and Paracos really went into a deep understanding of 
release and armoring and breath and self-possession. And I mean, all the things we know of as self-expression. I mean, but in a way it, it becomes almost like a, it's not even dogmatic, but more of an expectation set that's quite complex. You know, I'm, I'm engaging in something and I know what it's supposed to do for me. And I'm kind of focused on letting it do that for me. And I'm going to excavate the holdings and I'm going to release the primal material. And then we're going to have a grounding conversation at the end. So when I work with Lowen, that was profoundly helpful. Um, and also with Louise, but I wanted something else. So she's also a TRE practitioner. And so she said, let's just try TRE. And I had absolutely no idea. Just like seven exercises. It just seemed so simple. Just so simple. And my very first experience of at first a little difficult because I was just standing and holding certain positions that my body wasn't quite used to holding. So I had to build up, I think, to that. But then when we reached that tremoring stage lying on my back, I'm sure you have names for these stages. I was startled to find out that without having any sort of conscious point of focus with respect to psychotherapeutic process, it was happening for me. The vibration was somehow, it felt like a natural tendency, almost an actualizing tendency that was longing to occur that my armoring and my vigilance and my, at that moment, defended way of being was preventing from happening. Like it was just natural. It was like an invitation to naturality or something. And as I went through that process, I found that it was very clear to me I was discharging holdings I didn't have words for them. I wasn't screaming and hitting the foam cube. I wasn't going over the breathing stool and spitting up. I was just, something was being released that didn't have to have words for it. It was emanating from my story, but it wasn't worded. And at the end of it, I just felt one of the reasons I don't like sort of patriarchal spiritual structures is because they're obsessed with the mind. I think if you shift the way you think, it'll shift how you feel and what's going on in your body. And I think they've got it backwards. And what I experienced was the sense that whatever it was that I was obsessing over or particularly worried about, it took on a new perspective. It was broadened or deepened or softened or something simply because I was able to hold the vibration for long enough to discharge the holdings. Something was happening that wanted to happen. And it was nice for me as a wordsmith to feel like I finally didn't have to have words for it. Your experience describes it very well, and you make a number of points. The first one is what we kind of miss is this is genetically encoded in us. If it's still evolved over all these years and we're still genetically encoded to have this vibration activate, like you said, so easy, it's almost simple. You don't even understand how did it even start. So if that's the case, then we have to look scientifically at why did we still evolve with this and what potential therapeutic value does it have for the human body? But the other point you make, which is really good, is it strips away all psychology and philosophies, everything. It actually strips away even verbal articulation. You just lay down, let the body begin its own pulsating movement through this vibration. And then if something comes that needs to be articulated, it comes from within the organism itself. So what that seems to be for me is that you start to tremor and let's say maybe your diaphragm releases. And as that releases, you have a thought and say, oh, I didn't realize I've been holding my breath since that car accident two years ago. 
I'm not asking you about the car accident. Your body is eliciting a release from a, ten, a chronic tension pattern that you were no, no longer even conscious of. And when it releases that, the story gets evoked, but the story is able to integrate because I'm not asking you about the car accident that could be burdened with lots of emotions and memories and stuff. Your body is just saying, here's where you contracted me, and now I'm releasing it, and we're sort of free of it. And so it really takes the body to evoke the story rather than us psychologically asking you about the story and trying to find out where it is in the body. And that's not to say that somebody who is psychologically oriented and engaged in psychotherapeutic process can't do TRE with a psychotherapeutic intention. They can, but I think the point is, and my experience was that even without that, I was reaping some kind of psychotherapeutic benefit. Exactly right. But see, that's perfect. Louise Frechette started you with bioenergetics. Then she said, let's try TRE because the neurophysiology is a binaural pathway. You can move from the body to the mind or you can move from the mind to the body. And since we're designed to do it that way, if we have modalities that can move bidirectional, we should use them both because there are times when it's very important to articulate your experiences. That does help the body. And there are other times where you use the body and that is what helps you articulate an experience. So that bi-directional pathway in our nervous system, we should utilize it. <laughs> where articulation meets articulation. Exactly right. In my work, I'm, I'm in particularly in this podcast, I'm very interested in where pioneering philosophies and systems come from. So who is David Bercelli? How did he come to this and how did this relate to your own transformative journey? Well, it's quite interesting because I was working with a nonprofit organization, even when I was studying bioenergetics, I was working with them. I ended up working in Sudan for many years, about three years. And this was when there was a war between the North and the South. So there were times when I had to go into a bomb shelter and that sort of stuff. But there was one time when I went into a bomb shelter and we're all sitting there and I had two young children sitting on my laps. They were facing each other, sitting on my legs, and I had my hands on their backs and I could feel in their bodies. They were tremoring as though they were shivering from cold. I mean, because the bombs were loud and they were terrifying and the children were afraid. But I could feel this shiver going through their spinal column. So I looked around the room and I saw that all the young children were shivering or tremoring freely. But when it became about the age of 9, 10 or 11, you could see that their body was starting to shake, but they were resisting it, trying to hold on to it. Then when I saw the adults, absolutely none of them were shaking at all. So when the bombing was over, we came out of the bomb shelter. I asked a few of the men, I said, do you ever shake the way the children do? And they said, oh, no, no, we don't do that because we don't want the children to think we're afraid. And right there, like the light bulb went off, this organic mechanism that helps downregulate the nervous system, we freeze it because we have a mental stereotype that that suggests we're afraid 
rather than that demonstrates a healthy nervous system that's reducing the high charge of adrenaline from the fear and that we should all be tremoring. The children did it freely. The adults learned how to stop it because of the narrative that we have about shaking, that it shows weakness or vulnerability or insecurity, whatever. And it's the same as crying, though. If you think of crying, that's a natural pulsation of the diaphragm and chest cavity when you're overstimulated by something. So as a two-year-old, you fall, you hurt yourself, you cry freely. As a nine or 10 or 11-year-old, particularly even if you're a boy, you fall, you hurt yourself. What do you do? You try to hold back the crying because you want to become, quote, like an adult. An adult can fall and break their leg and they won't cry. So it shows you how we've, through the narrative that we have about this, we train ourselves out of an organic pulsation. And therefore, imprison ourselves inside of an armored trauma tunnel of undischarged feeling from 12 years ago, 18 minutes ago, 44 years ago, and have no idea why it is that we can't actually experience embodied presence in this moment. Exactly right. All it does is reinforce numbness and dissociation from the body so that all that stimulation that's supposed to be coming from the body going to the brain that keeps us alive and integrated all of it gets numbed out or frozen and we don't even know anymore when i work with many many soldiers they'll say to me honestly i can't cry i want to cry but i can't and what they're really saying is my chest cavity and my diaphragm have been so trained to be locked they can't pulsate anymore to produce the sensation that we call crying. They actually literally physiologically can't cry, even though psychoemotionally they want to. And it also makes sense. I mean, vigilance and vulnerability do make strange bedfellows. So if their job requires them to be armored, then going into that very vulnerable open state makes them possibly, actually it's not true, but would seem to make them more at risk of being attacked and not being able to be vigilant enough to protect themselves. But you and I both know what happens once the material accumulates too much, you actually become less present because you're so bunked up with old unprocessed material. Right. The military could do easily, and I've taught this to a lot of soldiers pre-deployment. I said, look, you're going to have to go out in the range or wherever you're going. Your, your life could be in danger. You do want to freeze from your emotions. You don't want to break down crying while you're holding a rifle. But once you get back behind the wire and you're in safety, that's where you want to discharge because you come back and you clean your weapon. You've got to also clean the inside of your body from what it is you put in it while you're out in the field. See, so I try to get them to recognize how respectful they are that their weapon keeps them alive. And I'm telling you, your body will help keep you alive as well. So I try to help them understand that. There's that process of, yes, we still need to freeze and dissociate, numb ourselves in certain circumstances in life, even in a car accident. You want to go into a numb response um, if you've hurt yourself and your body does that automatically. But after you're safe, you want to come back out of that. You don't want to live in that state for long periods of time. Absolutely. Uh, I called that conscious armoring in soul shape, my first book, soul shaping that, right. you, be, you know, it's like you're going to hang out with the horrible family members, put on a little armor, but just remember Perfect. to take it off when you get back in the car. <laughs> Very well put. That's absolutely beautiful. That's exa- if we could just learn that rhythm 
if we had a medical narrative that taught us that rhythm, because it doesn't teach that at all, or, or give us medication to move between one and the other, one medication to numb yourself, the other medication to enliven yourself. But the organism knows how to do that pulsation naturally. It's like, you know, I resonate with this in many ways. I know Peter Levine's sort of the waking of the tiger was kind of about that, that the tiger discharges the fight after it's over so that they're not holding it so they can return to what we might call freshness of appreciation or something like yeah. that. And I did it as a child. I was a master tantrumer. I had it in, in my mind body to discharge all the craziness around me and that it wasn't mine. I, as a child, I knew that. And then I reached a stage where either the stuff had just accumulated too much or it became unacceptable to wander about. I mean, I was Jewish, so I had a bar mitzvah 13. Now I was supposed to be this thing called a man and men don't cry. And so I started to put things away and everything became primarily dysfunctional in my life mm -hmm. once I started to put things away. So, you know, how to create a culture where we can stay natural as organisms while still developing and maturing into something called adulthood. I mean, you, I mean, conscious armoring is one practice we right. could employ. I mean, are there other things that you've experienced or that you've identified that would allow us to have a more seamless experience and a healthier experience from childhood into this thing called adulthood? Well, that's a matter of changing the whole paradigm of what it is to be a boy and a man or a girl and a woman. And that we have to have both masculine and feminine energies or psyches because we do possess both. And they have to have a balance for each person. That balance will be different when we come into those different stages will be different. And so we need a paradigm that allows expression, but yet still contains a kind of guidance for each individual as they're growing up. Unfortunately, we have parents and school systems, and they're not always synchronized about that. So the child can only be confused. I mean, our whole social process is kind of confused because when I work in what we call, quote, primitive cultures or less advanced cultures, they are far more advanced than we are. Mm -hmm. They are far more in touch with this process of growing as a human being and allowing the children both to express themselves, but have a certain amount of boundaries and guidance in that expression. It's amazing how many countries out there we call primitive or far more advanced than we are at being humans. Interesting. I always think of it as the distinction between a survivalist and, a, let's say, an authentic consciousness survivalism you just do whatever you have become whatever you have to become to put food on the table and get right. through the day and authenticity is really about who am i what do i really feel and how do i release these holdings and i mean i think that's the cultural movement that's required but the survivalist structures are they're digging in their heels very tightly to keep us yeah. trapped inside of that unconsciousness yeah i think one of the things i see in our culture because because of COVID, I've been living in the U.S. now for several years because I normally travel to about eight or nine countries a year. So I'm always traveling in and out of cultures. But since I've been here and I've been watching what's going on, I really do see that people sort of who are in the middle part of this country, the United States, and they're more farmers or their life is more slow paced, etc. If they haven't been infected by drugs, they actually have that connection to the land, which actually does make them go slower, and they're touching cattle every day or horses 
or they're feeding the chickens. And in that process, they are kind of experiencing, all right, this is life. They may be bored at times, but they're actually really connected to the moment because to feed the chickens, you have to be in the present moment, you know, to to work with the cattle, you have to be in the present moment. So the animals themselves and the land, if they're farmers, draws them constantly back into the present moment. Whereas we who live on the coastal regions of the United States and more in big cities, we're almost always not in the present moment. It's fascinating to see that. It's like they're more real with the feel. And, when, oh, absolutely. and we're trapped in our heads. I mean, it's, I mean, surviving by our wits. I mean, you, I, I don't know about you, but I've had many years of experiencing myself primarily through my cerebrum, you know, my cognitive functioning. And then when I find my way back into my body, I'm shocked that right. there's, there's a body holding my head up high. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what I find, interestingly enough, when I work with people who are weightlifters or, you know, call themselves health fitness people. Their bodies might be very strong and they could even be very flexible, but they're not in them. I work with a lot of yoga people. It fascinates me. I work with yoga people. I do one session. They've been doing five years of yoga. One session of TRE gets them deeper inside their body than five years of yoga. And that's not to say anything bad about yoga, but it's to say something about the way we take up yoga which is we learn how to flex the body, move it, stretch it, etc. But that doesn't mean you're inhabiting the body. Absolutely. I mean, yoga is the roots of yoga are fundamental to the patriarchal spiritual structure. It's I believe yoga is for most people a spiritual bypass technique, actually, yeah, um, and an emotional bypass technique. I mean, if you think about I remember I had this one experience with a buddy. We were in downtown Toronto with this place called Down Dog. It's a famous yoga studio. We're in the back and we were laughing. We were just joking. We were laughing. We were glared at by this particular teacher. And then we kept laughing. And he came to the back and he said in a very fierce way, and and I knew about this guy. This guy had had a very troubled life. And the way that he was managing his stuff was to tighten up, armor up and become a great, brilliant Ashtangi, transcending the human fray, allegedly. So he looked at us very, very seriously. And he said, there is no laughing in yoga. And I understood then it was almost like the moment you had with the kids. I understood that this yogic thing was built on a foundation of emotional dissociation. You were going to perfect the body. You were going to armor and strengthen the body. You were going to become the fittest motherfucker out there. But your connection to your felt experience was deliberately going to be diminished. So it's very tricky. You got to be very careful why you're doing it when you're doing it so that you don't end up being the most advanced yoga in the in the urban center you live in while being completely disconnected from your unresolved material. It's fascinating. I mean, yoga is very good. Bioenergetics is good. TRE is good. But even in all of these body focused behaviors, you can find people dissociated and use them as an escape and as a way to fool themselves, and I don't mean that bad, I mean we all do that in some way, but to fool themselves that they're becoming alive or more real or more grounded. So it's interesting how the human person can take almost anything (laughs) and use it to what they think it will do for them or should be for them. And oftentimes we can just use even body modalities to actually desensitize ourselves from our bodies. So 
We're very tricky species. We are. We're the masters of the bypass in every single yeah. form, every single form. So, so just back to so you have this moment in Africa. You have this understanding or insight of tremoring. How do you move from that to developing and pioneering? I mean, you're a pioneer, David. So how do you become this pioneer? And and what did you have to overcome in the world itself with respect to just bringing this new pioneering? Yeah, living in Sudan and other countries in the Middle East and in Africa, I lived in numerous countries. They were not, quote, what we call Western oriented. So psychology didn't really work. I am a clinical social worker. Counseling didn't work. Psychology didn't work. It didn't fit their consciousness. That's not how they thought. That's how we think in the Western world. And so I couldn't use psychology. And if I didn't know the language, because in Sudan, although I speak Arabic, there were four major languages that were going on. So sometimes there were translations going down the line. So I couldn't use language. I couldn't use the psyche of the Western world. But these people were seriously traumatized and by the millions, honestly. So you could have all nations who are traumatized. And I thought the only thing I have available is the body that's in front of me. And the only way I might be able to teach is by actually performing the exercises, then becomes a visual language. They just do what I do, even though they can't understand what I say. So I had to put together simple exercises. The goal is to evoke that tremor response in the body. The simple exercises, they had to be almost simplistic because everybody had to be able to do them. Old people, young people, people who might have physical limitations or restrictions. How could I get the simplest exercises put together in a routine where in the end, They all tremor and they recognize the exercises were for the purpose of evoking the tremoring, not for the exercises themselves, and that they could feel an immediate response that this feels right. I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on, but something in me tells me this is right. And so that's how I ended up over the next several years trying to figure out how to put together that exercise routine through hit and miss practicing studying the structure of the human body because I'm a massage therapist as well. So trying to figure out anatomically what muscles are linked with what muscles and how do we get the core muscles inside the human body? How do we get the tremor mechanism to evoke that deeply in the human body? So it took about four or five years to work that out. I read a lot about callings or sacred purpose. I mean, is why has this become David Percelli's work in this life? Does it make sense with the way you understand yourself as a soul, as an organism. I mean, is this, I I presume it's the right path for you, but only you can tell me, is it? And I mean, where does the impetus to want to bring something like this to the world come from in you? It's clear you're self-originating. You're not copying everybody. You're figuring it out yourself, but why? It's kind of interesting. I feel like I stumble my way through life. It's not like I have a plan or I even know what I'm doing, but I stumble myself through life in the sense that I just ended up in these places where there was lots of trauma. I myself was traumatized, obviously, because I lived in several countries there where there's a lot of severe political and violence and war. So I became one of millions of traumatized people. So part of it was a goal to figure out what do I do 
for me to stay alive in these situations? And then what would I do with my friends and colleagues? I had friends, families that I lived with who were being traumatized. So it was almost like a personal commitment to myself and to these people I lived with and came to love. We're going to keep ourselves alive. We're going to stay alive in these situations, no matter how difficult they are. That then moved into, because I did it for about three years in the Middle East before I even wrote my first book, because I wasn't interested in writing a book. I was really interested in the practice of this thing. Only when I came back to the Western world did somebody say, you need to write a book about this. So I tediously wrote a book, which I don't like doing, but I did it in the most simple form. So it actually evolved almost by itself. But the thing that's interesting to me, Jeff, is no matter if somebody right now laid down on the floor and they started to evoke the tremor mechanism through my guidance, I would still be fascinated. I would want to see, how's it moving? What's blocking it? How do I help it move easier? So for some reason, I still haven't lost that fascination. I get completely lost in the present moment when I'm watching somebody tremor. And I love that feeling. I'm just lost in it. It's not almost till it's over that I realize I just got totally absorbed in trying to figure out still, how do I help this tremor mechanism move through this particular body? So there is something, if you will, a calling about it, or maybe I was destined to do it. I don't know. But I still have an excitement and fascination after 25 years of doing it. So there's something in it for me. That sounds like sacred purpose to me. That's for sure. You yeah, know, sounds like absolutely. You that. And maybe we've touched a bit on this, but so you've you've worked with so many tremorers and seen, I'm sure, so many, um, I guess, distinctions between the way people manifest or disguise or defend or armor themselves, how they appear, say, before TRE, and then something closer probably to their original face or their authentic self afterwards. I know for me, the first time I did holotropic breathwork, what blew me away was not just the experience I had within the breathwork. It was in the witnessing stage where I was watching everybody do breathwork and couldn't believe the wide gap between the way they were manifesting to survive in the world, their adaptations, Mm -hmm. disguises, and then who really lived below it. This extraordinarily different being that often never has a chance to come out and play and develop itself and find its callings and all the rest of that. And I get culturally that various economic and political factors, they benefit from us being dissociated from our true core empowered self. That's getting more clear, I think, to all of us now, how this game is played. You know, if you're filled with self-hatred and disconnected from your center, you're much more manipulatable than you are if you're centered, spacious and authentic. Is there any hope for us, David, to close the gap or bridge the gap enough that we can save the species from its own trappings? Well, that's a complicated question because you're taking in politics and economics and all those other things. I really feel that sometimes if people are brought down to the most basic forms of life, they're closer to their authentic self than if they've got this big buffer of wealth or comfort or whatever where they can stay dissociated because there is such a thing as what we call post-traumatic growth. And that means that somehow you grow through difficult experiences in life. And post-traumatic growth suggests, the research that they've done, is that people become better people after the trauma or by going through the trauma. 
And this may be a little bit more to your point. People say they have had spiritual experiences, whatever they mean by that. Spiritual experiences as a result of going through these difficult moments in life. So simple example, I work with a lot of women who have gotten divorced. They've got two children, as an example. They're trying to raise them by themselves. So they're raising the children. They're usually going to work to pay the bills, and they're trying to go to school to better themselves. Five years after the divorce, they'll say, ever since that divorce, or because of that divorce, I discovered how strong I really am. Well, that's interesting. So now they're reframing that experience of it collapsed my life, it was terrible, to that experience now changed the way I appreciate me in life. So that's one simple example of it. But another one would be, if I were to say I had a spiritual experience, what they're calling that is a reframing of I now feel bigger or more connected or beyond myself and connection to something bigger than me. But I got there by collapsing the little me inside that only collapsed because of the trauma. You see, there's a paradox here. Mm-hmm. Are we going to get better? Well, trauma could make us worse, but working through the trauma could make us a better species. Where possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And making the conversation about trauma and, and regulation and tremoring a natural part of and socially acceptable, not shamed and shunned and all right. the rest of that. But I think that the bridge, from my perspective, so where we can reach a place where we're bridging, say, transcendence and imminence, which is sort of mm-hmm. what we're talking about, is embodiment. Those who don't go and not just getting stronger, as you discussed earlier, and more fit in the body, but being more truly emotively connected to the body, strengthening the sense of self in relation to your feelings somehow for me is the bridge to that more expansive place. When you try to jump up and away from the body to do it, then that's the bypass. It has no foundation and it comes crashing down to earth. So mm-hmm. I think that's what we're learning now. We People were talking about trauma forever, but now we're starting to understand the relationship between healing trauma and embodiment and that coming down into the body, really feeling safe and secure, grounded, and clearing out the emotional debris becomes a bridge to awakening that's actually sustainable. Yeah. Now, if you want to put that, we're edging between spirituality and physics. When we talk about physics, we can talk about vibration. Everything is vibration. That's already been proved by physics, the science of physics. Everything is vibration. Well, what does that suggest then if the human organism lays on the floor and it begins vibrating? And when it vibrates, what it does is it releases tight tension from the myofascial patterns. Well, if it's releasing tension, is that changing the vibrational frequency of the human person? And if it's raising their vibrational frequency, is that making it easier for them to be in touch with the frequencies, if you will, of the planet, of plants, of other humans? Are we, in fact, by our very nature designed to expand our vibrational frequency. And in that expansion, we automatically feel the connection. There's no effort. It just happens. And the reason we have depression or other difficulties is that the organism is squeezing itself so tight that the person can't feel the connection. That squeeze has got to loosen so that the vibratory frequency can raise 
And then all of a sudden they're connected with the vibration of the earth and of other people of our species, animals, etc. So there's a suggestion already in the field of physics of what we've been talking about in terms of psychology is grounding, being in the body, being fully alive. Well, is that actually producing this altered state, if you will, of connectedness to something bigger than me? Interesting. I mean, I th- I've often said depression is frozen feeling. So the thawing out of that feeling is sort of becomes the, the bridge. And I know Lowen and I talked once um, when I worked with him in his office in Connecticut. And he, you know, I said, look, what do you do with people who are really deeply depressed? He said, it's challenging because in order for them to reach the place where they're not going to be depressed, we have to energize them enough to clear the holdings in order to feel connected to something outside of themselves so they don't feel so tight and isolated. But because they're depressed, it's very hard to energize them. So maybe TRE is a nice bridge because bio could be very vigorous, very activated, very intense and quite terrifying for somebody who and something not even accessible to a super frozen armored embodied experience Whereas I think my experience of TRE, and that might have been what was happening for me. I think maybe I was feeling a bit depressed. And it was just a much gentler easing into the realm of feeling, you know, which I was mm-hmm. feeling very cautious about, that became then an invitation to release in a way that didn't feel so terrifyingly intense that I had to flee it. Right. That's a great example. See, when we do TRE and we evoke the tremor mechanism, <sighs> our goal then is to regulate it at the speed that the individual can find it pleasurable, that they can integrate it. And so if they're frozen and they start coming out of freeze too quickly, they'll just get scared. But there's, you can actually get them to tremor very mildly and gently, and they come out of freeze very slowly. And each little stage they're coming out, it feels pleasurable and they can integrate rather than it feels frightening and overwhelming. And then they have to go back into themselves. So we're always trying to regulate that pulsation But we start the pulsation just from the human organism. And my goal is to say, oh, what can it do right now today? Let's look at it. I don't care whether the tremoring is big or it's little. I don't care if it's small vibrations deep in the body or big movements. Doesn't matter. What does the organism show us that it can and wants to do today? That's our starting point. And if you stay with that every day, then that's what slowly thaws out that frozen, dissociated pattern in the structure without it just letting go. And all of a sudden they have no defense mechanism. Yeah, that's not going to, that it's a, it's kind of like the experience people used to have doing primal scream. They do primaling, there'd be no grounding, they'd go out in the streets and they were completely disoriented, um, you know, not so integratable. Yeah, in this, it was interesting. But if you look at historically the evolution, we had Freudian psychotherapy up to about the 60s, okay? Freudian analysis, and then Wilhelm Rudd came and started to change things. But what it was, body movement in the 60s became a big backlash to the repressive nature that we were living under for so many years. So all of a sudden now people were saying, I'm going to express myself. It was just nothing but the pendulum swing. But like you said, it swung so far, people were taking drugs and they were having these out-of-body experiences and all this sexual stuff, overly expressing themselves, but without a ground. And that was just nothing but the swing from being over-repressed and over-restricted and constrained. And we exploded out of it. And ever since the 60s, I think we've been trying to figure out where's the middle of that. 
Yeah, maybe we're getting closer to that now. I feel like we might be getting closer slowly, to that now. Yeah. Slowly. But look at how long it takes us to do this. Takes a long, it takes a long time to heal this species. In terms of TRE in the world, where is it at? What What are your hopes for? Is it expanding? Are you seeking to expand it? What is it moving into other places and other countries? What does it feel like the future of TRE is? Yeah, it's expanding around the world, which I really like. It's kind of expanding organically. We're not very well known and, you know, we, we don't do a lot of publicity and advertising, but it expands because it works. That's what's really beautiful. If it didn't work, it wouldn't be expanding by itself. So my books have been published in like 14 languages. We're in, I think, over 50 countries around the world. And what what we need to do, which is what I'm trying to support now, is it's got to expand within the cultural context of the country they're in. So Eastern Europe, as an example, might give a different expression of how to train people and how to invite that tremor mechanism into the body. That would be very different from maybe Western Europe, very different from South America, where it's more Latin exposure, different from Asia and all the different Asian countries. So although it's moving into all these parts of the world, I'm promoting that it learn how to express itself within their own cultural context and not just imitate what was presented from the what we call Western world or even the mm. United States. So you're it's being it's getting more culturally attuned. So it's still the same series of practices, but your way of understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, your way of understanding how to approach it is attuned to the relationship each culture has with, for example, the body or surviving by its wits. I mean, you're not going right. to do TRE in New York, urban New York at a corner busy Starbucks in the stock market area the way you're going to do TRE in Sudan. Right. The only identifying element that I should be able to see wherever I go around the world is their tremoring. Because once they're tremoring, I know what to do with them. I don't care how they got to that point, but if they get them there, they're tremoring. Now, in Japan, as an example, they're very conscious of energy. That country is very conscious of energy and spirits. So they start to tremor and they start to articulate something about energies and spirits and ancestry. So I simply follow their articulation, but I still know exactly what to do with that body. I don't even have to know the language. I can still make an intervention on that body just by observing the tremor as it moves through there. How they articulate what that's doing is important to them. I don't really need to even know that, but I need to show them the common denominator of the human organism. Every human organism can tremor, must tremor in my mind, because it helps them continue to stay alive and integrated inside the human body. How you get them there is irrelevant in many ways because it just has to be culturally sensitive. Which I imagine to some extent has to be something to do with safety, that what feels safe, what will be inviting for an urban agitated Westerner who's been right. trapped inside of their head. They need to really, really know that you're not part of the competitive framework that they're earning right. their living in. I was working with Syrian refugees in Turkey one time. And there were 10 men and two women in this group. I was teaching them how to teach TRE to the refugees. Well, these women were veiled and clothed the way women clothe themselves. Arab women generally clothe themselves. And it was fascinating. But I, I was comfortable. I lived in the Middle East for nine years. So I already knew all of this stuff. 
But I negotiated with them very openly. Men, are you allowed to make an intervention in the women? Women, are you allowed to make an intervention in the men? Because I said making interventions is part of this process. You're going to have to teach. And I just openly negotiated it and said, please tell me how to be sensitive to your culture. It works perfectly because they could see that I was completely undefended. I was being vulnerable to them and saying, I'm willing to let you teach me. But here's what has to be the baseline. All of you have got to figure out how to tremor within your cultural context. It's simple. It's really quite simple. If you show that you care, you're sensitive. I always find that if I expose myself to be vulnerable, that puts them in a higher position. And all of a sudden, they become very sensitive to me. It's just about human, honest human caring for each other. I think your sincerity is really is quite a marvel to witness, David, even in our 45 minutes together. Uh, Thank you. I, I really think it's just from being in the human body and everything becomes equal. <laughs> Every human organism is equal. I don't care who comes to me, if they're from a high status or low status, I'm fascinated at how do they inhabit their body. doesn't matter. Fantastic. Sounds like you're the pioneer that found his way home. Anything else? No, that's it, I think. Uh, hopefully people have got something of value from this. <laughs> I think I think if we were to say anything in the end, and both you and I would agree, if we can truly inhabit our bodies, we would see the equality of humanity. We would have no more divisiveness for any reasons, whether it's sexual or racial or genetic or national. All of that would dissolve because I can go to any country and have a whole group of people lay on the floor, get them all to tremor, and you would have no idea what country they were from, what per political persuasion they belonged to. None of it would matter because you'd be looking at a live human person. And collectively, we became one human group trying to come towards aliveness. Beautiful. Tremoring is the great unifier. Finally, we, finally yeah. we found it. Finally, yes. we found it. Thank you so much, David. I'm so excited okay, to bring you, your Jeff. work to the world. Thank you. I appreciate the interview. The dark is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me. Yeah. Over the moon and through stars, arrows come straight for.